Before I start, I just wondered, um, I wondered how many people here were international students at Oxford? Okay. And when did people, when did people arrive here? I mean, how many people were, have been here since 2000? And between 1980 and 1999, and, and pre-1980, I'm looking at my mother-in-law in the front <laughs> row. You should be raising Jill. 1980. Thank you. Okay. I should also say that I am, I am an international alum of this university. I came here as a graduate student in 1992 um, and did a doctorate in history at Nuffield and a research fellowship at St. Hilda's. Um, afterwards. So it's been a particular pleasure for me. I returned to the university 18 months ago to take up this post, which is new. And I have an extraordinarily broad remit to think about international things, everything from international students and how we attract them, uh, fund them, what quality of experience they have, to international academic staff, to international research and collaborations. And I apologize to Nina, who has heard me say this before at another session. Yesterday. So, one of the pleasures of my job has been finding out about how international the university is. Um, and I will bore you with a few numbers. What's, a, what's amazing is that we have this extraordinary international presence. Um, some of it starts with our reputation internationally, and I've written History, Quality, and Rhodes Scholarship, um, and people might say, why do you highlight the Rhodes in particular? I grew up in suburban Montreal, and I have to say that you hear about Oxford before you hear about Harvard and before you hear about Cambridge, simply because there are Canadian prime ministers and people running law firms and eminent judges and public leaders who won Rhodes Scholarships. So it has defined excellence um, for Canadians. Um, so I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of that. We also forget that we have Oxford University Press in 51 countries around the world. It's one of the world's oldest presses founded in the 15th century, but it's also the world's largest university press. And I meet a lot of people internationally who have first encountered the Oxford name on a dictionary or increasingly on an English language teaching manual. And particularly in Asia, I mean, people talk with semi-reverence about the Oxford Chinese dictionary, which was the one that helped them learn the English language. So we become very early on defined with the English language, with um, quality English education. Um, we have more than 46,000 alumni, and those are just the ones in the database at the moment living outside the UK in literally every country of the world you can imagine, which is a tremendous asset when academics of the university or senior officers of the university drop down. Um, you can count on being welcomed in just about any country in the world by Oxford alumni. But then we also do a lot of research internationally. I had no idea until I started this job that we had a network of tropical medical research laboratories in Kenya, Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. And these are not small operations. There are more than 850 people who work there, and they are a mix of Oxford academics and local staff. And they are collaborations between the Wellcome Trust, who is the funder, as well as local universities. And they are doing simply extraordinary work, everything from basic science to clinical trials, on major killers like malaria, um, HIV, avian flu, you name it. Um, and that, I mean, 
what a tremendous presence and what a tremendous benefit to academic research. The other thing is that we now have university offices in Tokyo, in New York, and most recently in Hong Kong, which we opened last year. So there's a big presence internationally. I will come on in a moment to how international the student body is here at Oxford. But given that we're pretty international already, you may say, well, you know, Heather, so what's the point of an international strategy? And what is it? I met a diplomat yesterday who kind of put me on the spot within about 30 seconds. So how international are we and what is the international strategy? Well, if you're fairly international already and if you've spent 800 years building up a fairly particular academic and social ecosystem, frankly, in Oxford, it doesn't make a lot of sense to do what some other universities have done, which is to set up campuses overseas though our research may take us out there. I think the challenge for us, in a way, is elaborated here, really. We need to maintain and deliver on our distinctiveness internationally, particularly since people come to Oxford with hugely high expectations based on the name and the reputation developed over years of perception in films and books and what their friends have told them. Um, and really the challenge for us is to keep attracting the very best people here and helping them to succeed, supporting them appropriately. And Sinway and Carolyn can tell us more about how we're doing on that score. Also attracting the best academic staff and then crucially helping those really talented people um, do all of the international things they wish to do. Um, from conducting clinical trials in China to doing field work in the Amazonian rainforest of Brazil um, to spending a summer doing an internship in southern Africa. Um, that's really the challenge for us. And I put collaboration at the bottom here because a lot of these things are best done in conjunction with others, and that could be other universities, bless you, it could be other funding bodies, but it could also be through our alumni networks around the world. In a globalizing world, you need to use your friends to make some of these things happen. This is a general chart, but I wanted to just give you a picture of where the university is today in terms of its students. So as of December 1 last year, we had 20,000 students. We are still, if we start on the left, a majority undergraduate institution. But I think when the people who were here pre-1980 were here, that undergraduate would have been more, figure would have been more like 75% or even beyond. One of the big changes of the past 10 years is that our graduate student numbers have grown by 35%. So postgraduate taught is a formal way of saying master's courses, really. And postgraduate research is a formal way of saying doctorates. And so now fully 34% of our student body is undertaking graduate work. And as I say, those numbers have grown a lot. So when we talk about international students, we're talking both about the undergraduates and the graduate students. We also have a small portion of visiting students and a small portion of part-time students. The other thing to remember is just how we're distributed subject-wise. Now again here, um, Social sciences is probably the division that has grown the most over the course in numbers over the course of the past, say, 20 to 30 years. But you see a fairly even split between humanities, maths and sciences, and social sciences. Medicine seems awfully small. It's really interesting. Medicine generates three-quarters of the research income of the university, but only has 13% of the students. And that's largely because the government regulates us in how many clinical medicine students we can 
admit. Yes, and our international numbers in clinical medicine are capped at 8%, um, because understandably the government has a vested interest in building the British doctor base, which of course creates interesting situations for people like Sinway. So that's a reminder of our student body. The other reminder, I suppose, you know, you may ask, why do international students come here? Well, a lot of it has to do with the distinctive form of education that we offer. I was an undergraduate at Harvard, which I adored, um, uh, but the undergraduate education offered there is very different to the undergraduate education offered here. We are much more specialized here. Um, you choose a subject, and that is all you study for your three or four years, whereas in the U.S. you would be doing a liberal arts degree that requires you to do a mix of subjects. Um, in the U.S. you would probably have a more mixed economy of lectures and classes and seminars and possibly the occasional tutorial. Here, the fact of the tutorial system, I mean, it really is unique to us and Cambridge. It's just not on offer anywhere else in the world. Um, and our international students, um, many of whom are facing, for example, continental European universities with huge lecture theaters like this one and bigger, speak of the attraction of that personal attention. Um, at graduate level, we have this increasing number of taught master's courses of one or two years. Um, and then we have our doctoral programs of three and increasingly four years. Um, and in general, that's seen as quicker than an American PhD, though people will, of course, argue the pros and cons of that and the um, ability to get jobs afterwards in the North American job market. Um, but a lot of students are attracted here by the ability to get to research quickly and start publishing papers. So that is my overview on international strategy and on kind of the state of the university. And now I'm going to ask you some questions, but really to frame the, the remainder of the presentation. So. So my first question is, and I don't know if you want to jot this down on paper, because we'll do the answers as we go along. How many of our students are citizens of countries other than the UK, do you think? Is it 22, 34, 47, 55? Any takers? 34. You are correct. Correct first time. I'll show you the, what are we, I'll change my plan. We'll go through the questions, and then I'll show you the charts with some of the answers. What country do you think is the largest source of international students at Oxford? India, China, the US, or Germany? It is. It's the US. <laughs> but the second one is China. And indeed, China's the largest source of undergraduates, which we'll come back to. Which undergraduate degree has the highest percentage of international undergraduates in the university? Is it the famed PPE? Is it maths and stats, modern languages, or engineering? Maths and stats. You guys are too good. That's exactly right. It's more than 50% in maths and stats. There are two courses in the university that are more than 50%, uh, maths and stats and engineering, economics, and management. Where are the top feeder schools for Chinese undergraduates? Are they in Beijing and Hong Kong, Shanghai and Singapore, Sydney and Auckland, or Scunthorpe and Croydon? I'm hearing some... Well, it's exactly right. It's Scunthorpe and Croydon. So one of the really 
uh, there's a sixth form college called James John Leggett College in Scunthorpe that has connections to Merton and connections to China um, that's been very successful in sending students here. And there's a school called um, Cambridge Tudors College that is located in Croydon. Um, but the, big, the bigger message about this is less the Scunthorpe Croydon-ness of it, um, but more the fact that the majority of our Chinese students at undergraduate level are already at school in the UK which is, of course, not... I expected the answer to this to be Beijing and Hong Kong when I started this job. And when we started looking at the data, it turns out that these students are making a decision to come to the UK for university age 15. And you sit with them. They come for sixth form. Some come for longer, and they attend boarding schools, and often their parents are making big financial sacrifices in order to fund this. So... uh, it's a really interesting mix because on the one hand they can be quite foreign in terms of culture, language, previous education before they get to the UK, but on the other hand they're advised by British teachers about the courses at Oxford in a way that makes them almost like a British student. Um, And when you say to them, did you apply to Princeton? And they say, no, if we'd wanted to go to US universities, we'd have gone to school there. Um, So that's a decision that's being made you know, three or four years earlier um, than most of our other students. German students, by and large, are at school in Germany, and American students, by and large, are at school in the U.S. at undergraduate level. But the Chinese students are a totally different phenomenon. And finally, how many doctoral students in Oxford are fully funded by a scholarship? Is it A, 95%, B, 70%, C, 60%, or D, 40 Any guesses? You think D. Well, we're doing better than that. It turns out it's C. It's 40% in the humanities and social sciences, and it's 70% in sciences and medicine. And so the balancing factor, given the distribution of numbers, gets you to 60%. The challenge we have is that many of our top peers, that number is 95 to 100%. And I'll come back to that. So just to run you through some of the, the data. I'm sorry for the, this being so dense, but just to orient you. This is the type of student down the left-hand side. Full-time, undergraduate, postgraduate, taught postgraduate research, all postgraduates together, total full-time students, part-time visiting students. And then this shows the percentage of international students. The blue is Europe outside the UK, and the green is beyond Europe. So the U.S. and China are in the green, and Germany and France and now Romania are in the blue. So the ladies who got this correct the first time around, total full-time students were now 34% non-UK by nationality. It's 14% for the undergraduates, and it's 62% for the graduate students. So very, very different mix, depending on the level of the university you're talking about. But in a way, it stands to reason, because people are much more likely to be mobile when they're 23 or 24 or 25 than they are aged 17 or 18. Fully, almost 7,000 of our students are now international students out of the total of 20. And you may ask, well... How has that changed? This is how it's changed. This was the picture in 1996. So 11 years ago, we were 24% on the total student body, 10% undergraduate, and 50% graduates. So the bulk of the increase has been at postgraduate level, 
But on the other hand, the undergraduates are so much more numerical that that shift from, there are so many more of them, that the shift from 10 to 14% also swings the absolute numbers a lot. The growth in undergraduates has been primarily since 2002. Hard to know if that's a, um, a 9-11 phenomenon with people shifting here as opposed to the U.S., Though given that a lot of the growth has been amongst Chinese students and they already had to be in sixth form two years earlier, it's probably a trend that started in the late 90s. So that was question one. Question two, we were looking at the top sources of international students. So this gives the top 10 for the university as a whole, including the UK. And so you see the US second, China including Hong Kong third, Germany and so on couple of things that are interesting to me about this. When you look at the composition of the country, so understandably you have the UK, then you have English-speaking countries that used to be part of the empire, in effect. I mean, and you can even include the US. I can say this as a Canadian if you go back long enough in history, right? You, you have the US, you have Canada, India, Australia. Canada, I mean, we have 30 million people in Canada. We are massively overrepresented here in this league table. Um, and I find it very striking that there are more Canadians here than there are Indians. And then Australia and also Ireland. So that's one category for English-speaking former empire. Then you have a set of continental countries, starting from the bottom, Italy, France, um, and Germany. We have a lot. Excuse me, aren't Germany still Rhodes Scholars? Do they still attract Germans? Yes, there are still Rhodes Scholarships that are awarded. But interestingly, we have a lot of German undergraduates, too. Okay, so that's not just, a, that's the second, sorry, the fourth column here is the full-time undergraduates, just to give you that as well. Um, and then the third group is, is a class of its own, namely China. Now, what's interesting is if we did this ranking 10 years ago, China wasn't on the top 10 list. It's, uh, in 1996, there were 89 students from China, uh, mainland China, including Hong Kong. Um, so that's absolutely massive growth rate. And this final column, and I apologize for all of the numbers here, but that gives the year-on-year -year compound annual growth. And you see that the Chinese student numbers have been growing 23% every year for the past 10 years. And India is the other one that has been growing, you know, 10%, roughly double-digit numbers. No. Just India. We're not talking Indian subcontinent, so Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, etc. don't appear here. So the change since 96, 97 is China, India, and France have entered the top 10, and Greece, Singapore, and Japan have exited the top 10. And they're all in the 10 to 20s, but uh, what's essentially happened is that, for example, J Japanese numbers have been flat, and so they've just stayed where they always were, and others have overtaken them. What do international students study? This is, we've taken international undergraduates just to define this, this group a bit more. And what this shows you is the split of students between the different divisions. And this starts with the UK students. So you see almost 40% are studying the humanities. And then you move to Europe outside the UK. And what you see is overrepresentation of social sciences. So the blue grows. So the EU students, and in particular German students, very attracted to PPE. Also law. 
I always think of law as being a very national discipline, but a lot of people think that they are attracted to studying the common law and to settling in the UK in order to practice law. And then overseas students, you see it go in a different direction. They are enormously attracted to mathematics and science, and the single biggest group there is Chinese. We conduct an international student barometer every year, in fact, multiple times a year with our international students, undergraduate and postgraduate. And you may ask what it is that they tell us about the quality of their experience. And it asks them, I mean, literally, it is a long battery of questions about their learning experience, their living experience, the quality of support they receive. Um, and I was flipping through the report, trying to distill it down. Really, these are the top messages, and Sinway and Carolyn can kind of give you a personal correction on this. The relative strengths, people say very good things about the quality of teaching and the quality of their academic experience. They say very good things about their social facilities, about the number of students societies, the sport opportunities, the extracurriculars. And they also say that future uh, employability is good, that the Oxford brand does them well. Where they identify, well, what I've, <laughs> in a weasel way, labeled areas to work on, but which you could label relative weaknesses, is living costs, financial support, also careers advice, I mean, particularly for students who are thinking of returning to their home country, we're only starting to get um, better at providing international careers advice. And the careers services, which is now under new leadership, is about to hire their first international officer and has one of their senior officers spend a lot of time internationally. Because we're realizing that we've got almost 7,000 students who need a different kind of careers advice than we've had before. The other thing is that there are a lot of other universities in the UK where you have a more explicit opportunity to work while you study. Um, or to teach on the side while you study. Um, and the intensity of the program is such here that we tend to discourage people from doing that. Um, but that's something they're critical of. The most favorable comments that you get out of surveys like this, and I've just given you a an example of three, I think encapsulate the relative strengths I've described. Because of the overall learning environment and college experience, particularly in being part of the unique academic and social community here, this is why this person would recommend that others come here. Because studying at Oxford, the name, does open doors. Uh, the next one I include because I think it's deeply sweet. It is because Oxford is the best place I have ever been in terms of its academic atmosphere and environment. Oxford is a peaceful heaven on earth, which, you know, Possibly not entirely true, but, but good to wheel out every so often. And there's, I think then the more um, clinical American assessment, there's no place quite like it, and it's well worth some of your time. <laughs> In terms of areas to work on, and I don't mean to end this on a down note, but um, the funding issue is one that we take very seriously vis-a-vis -vis international students. Our fees are for domestic students are regulated, um, at, for domestic students and EU students are regulated and held at about £3,000 per year, but our overseas students, our fees are unregulated for them. And when you add tuition fees, college fees, and living expenses for both undergraduates and graduate students, you're looking at something like £25,000 <coughs> or more per year. Um, and clearly, that's a lot of money. Now, it's not clear that we charge any more than our peers in the UK or in the US, but we fall short, particularly at graduate level, of our top-end American peers in terms of the level of scholarship provision that we provide. And this is a slightly dense spectrum 
that tries to give you that picture. So over on the left, you have a set of UK peers, us, Cambridge, Imperial, the LSE, where, frankly, we don't know how much funding they provide to their students, and my guess is they don't know either um, because we're all pretty opaque about the data. Um, but we have worked very hard here to try to understand that 60% figure that I gave you. So we're, 60, we're probably as good as anybody in this country and possibly better. So 40% of our graduate students are, are DPhil students, are covered by a scholarship in the social sciences and the humanities, and 70% in the sciences. And you may think that's good. And in fact, we look a lot like a state university in the United States who have no particular guarantees, who have variations in their funding level, somewhere between about 60 and 100%, depending on the department. Where we fall short is of wealthier US private universities, where literally 95 to 100% of people enrolling in PhD programs get a five-year funding package. That is some mix of a straight scholarship and a teaching fellowship or a research assistantship. And more and more American universities have been moving towards that. So, you know, you may say, ah, oh, well, it's Harvard, Princeton, Yale, they have a lot of money. It's actually not just Harvard, Princeton, Yale, it's Brown, MIT, Stanford, and NYU and Columbia, who have had really worked very hard to improve the funding position for their graduate students over the course of the ten, past 10 to 15 years. It's also continental universities. So German universities, the German government created um, an Exzellenz initiative, an excellence initiative a few years ago where they're putting 1.5 billion euros into their higher education sector and they're actually concentrating resources on a top set of universities, which in Germany is virtually unheard of. I mean, this is an unprecedented step. And one of the things that they're putting the money into is creating graduate schools, which largely teach in English and will largely totally fund many of the students. Um, so that the competitive threshold here is shifting for us. Um, and we're working very hard. It's a big priority in our fundraising campaign um, to try to increase the amount of graduate scholarship support we have. I have talked at you for a long time now, and I'm keen to get on to our students, but I also feel like I should pause and um, get any initial reactions. But if I have numbed you <laughs> into post-lunch, you know, sugar deprivation, maybe we should shift to students. Um, tell me, break down about gender and graduate students. It exists. I don't, but I don't even know it, frankly. My impression. I'm looking at you guys. My impression is that it's about even, and my guess is that the international students. Well, I think you could argue it both ways. So I was going to say that the international students would be more male than female, but actually not, because I think we have a lot of international humanities students who might well be more likely to be female. Gross overgeneralization here, right? And, um, and yeah, and then there would be other nationalities that would be sending us more, um, more men. But even that's not true, because a lot of our Chinese students, for example, are women doing science, and it's a terrific thing. So... I will go run those numbers now. Any other questions? Nancy. Um, a, lot, a lot of this funding includes um, teaching assistantships and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and also it includes loans, but loans which are basically brokered by the universities. Is, is there any suggestion that we might go down that route? Yeah. Um, 
most of the top places for PhD programs have moved away from loans. So there'll be a lot of loans for masters, but less for PhDs. Um, and indeed, places, places like Princeton, who are so wealthy on an endowment basis, have actually started dropping the teaching assistantship piece of it. So they're eliminating it to two terms so that students, because what happens with the teaching assistantship is that you often end up lengthening your time to completion. And so what they've now said is we'd rather people finished quicker. We will give them teaching as part of their professional development, but it's not a fundamental part of their package. So this is why everyone now looks at Princeton with huge envy. Um, so the loan, where we're exploring the loans is on the master's front in particular to try to make this accessible to people who are doing, make one or two years master's more accessible. And so people can either um, take out a loan at, borrow in effect against future earnings if they're going to go off and use that as a professional master's degree in law, in business, what have you. Um, or they could use it as a loan and ideally one day if they moved on to a PhD, we'd have a scholarship that would help them pay off the loan. This is in the world of unlimited money. So we're in discussions about, with banks about this, but of course, as you can tell, credit crunch and all, it's not a great time to be having this conversation. Um, so we may just have to stick the idea in a drawer for a year or two. On the teaching assistantships front, it's, we've, we've started having very interesting discussions about this. Um, there are obviously a lot of college lectureship and ad hoc teaching opportunities around the university, and a lot of people are doing this. Um, people will tell you very mixed stories about how transparent we are about those opportunities and the extent to which they're genuinely open to people who weren't undergraduates here. Um, and people have very mixed views about this. I mean, to the extent that a number of students are attracted by the fact that our doctorate is shorter than the American one, and that is in part because we don't have the teaching years built in, people you know, have a, a lot of qualms about possibly moving towards that system. It's clear, though, I mean, the Americans have done three things. They, they're not loss-making on undergraduate education, so they subsidize they are able to use undergraduate fees to subsidize graduate education. Well, we're loss-making on domestic and EU undergraduates, so we can't do that subsidy. They do the teaching assistantship thing, and they've shrunk student numbers. They've said, we're only going to fund, we're only going to admit the people we can fund. And of course, if you're a research active academic, you actually want a big group of doctoral students around you fueling that research enterprise. And so to start limiting those numbers um, is a very hard thing to do. But we're having active conversations about all the different... One of the things that the teaching assistants do, I don't want to go on about this, but they do give people who are going to spend their life in academia some sort of, as it were, teaching practice. Absolutely. And it's easier... Here it has been easier... You know, if you want to introduce people into tutorials, it's easier to do that if you were an undergraduate here already. And that's a chunk of our graduate students, but not everybody. Also, we take undergraduate education very seriously, and we take undergraduate education by established academics very seriously. So people worry about the dilution of quality. Now, the truth is a lot of graduate students teaching for the first time are hugely enthusiastic, dedicated, reading all the books, marking all of the essays. Indeed, that's what their supervisors worry about, is they spend so much time being prepared about the teaching that they're ignoring their own research. So there's a concern about undergraduate quality there, um, and there's concern that it just takes so much more time. Um, it is also 
easy, where people, my husband's a professor of economics, he finds it easier to give his doctoral students opportunities to help teach master's classes or to mark problem sets. So you try to find other ways to put them into the teaching world. Um, but different, you know, different departments of the university and indeed different colleges are doing different things as well. Okay, enough from me. Sinhui, tell us what it's like to be an international undergraduate. I thought the question about gender was very interesting because I come from a department of the university where there are very few international students and from the very limited sample size of five, four of us are women. In the, and in the medical school, it's 65% women, 35% men. And just last, last month in the BMJ, someone was saying that um, we should help boys get into medical school again. But that's an aside. I'm Sinhui, I'm from Singapore. And I'm a fifth year medic in Lincoln College. And a question that people still ask me a lot, even though I've been here for quite a few years and Oxford's been in the news a lot, is why did you choose to go to Oxford when in the country I come from, Oxford seen as being a humanities and social sciences university. And this came up way before I decided to apply to Oxford because I used to live in Oxford when I was really small because my father was a neurosurgeon in DRI, what is now going to become the Humanities Institute, he used to be the Radcliffe Infirmary. Um, so growing up here, people used to say to me, you know, now that you've been to Oxford and you've smelt the air and walked the streets, maybe you'll come back here and study medicine. My parents laughed at the thought because of the cost and because of the difficulty they associate with getting into this university, so that plan was shelved for a good 17 years. When it eventually came round to the time when I was to apply for university, I was in one of the better schools in my country, um, a school which the Asian Wall Street Journal parodied a few years ago because it seemed to be an Ivy League machine because it sent many people to Ivy League universities. And that's where my teachers wanted me to go. Was I going to apply to Harvard? Was I going to apply to Yale? I had perfect SAT scores. But I said I wanted to go to the UK because I was pretty sure I wanted to be a doctor by then. I'm not sure it was because of my parents and because my mum's a nurse and my dad's a doctor. And so I said I want to go to the UK because there'll be shorter training to become a doctor. And I've been to Oxford and I want to go back there. This was met with a certain degree of um, shock from the school because no one had got in for years and years to Oxford Medicine. And they said, why don't you go to Cambridge? More people get in there. It's the science university. And I said, absolutely not. Oxford produces the dictionary, and Oscar Wilde went there, so I'm going to Oxford. <laughs> it made sense to me as an 18-year-old, and I applied and wrote very enthusiastically about, on my UCAS form about Lord Flory and Boris Chain and penicillin and Oscar Wilde, of course. Mm -hmm. And I got an interview. I came, and I got in, which was extremely shocking because I thought the interview didn't go very well in front of the Regis Professor of Medicine. I think you probably saw something in me, and I'm very, very grateful for the opportunity to be standing here talking to you today. Coming here to Oxford was everything I thought it would be, a little more and in some ways a little less. And t the two things which blew me away were, first of all, the academic environment. I think Heather's talked a lot about that and about the people who, who say all sorts of fantastic things about how it's such a brilliant place to be academically. And I think coming from a country which does not perceive Oxford yet to be that much of a scientific powerhouse in some ways, even though recently since I've come, more default students have been sent here for the medical sciences. I was so surprised to find that it's one of the top biomedical universities in the world. Quite silly when you think I come from a country which is more well-connected than most countries in Western Europe in terms of the internet. But it was just a perception which I had when I was growing up. I've had the opportunity to work with all sorts of experts in the field, including closer to home, 
because my family is actually Thai even though I live in Singapore. And the tropical medicine department that, that Heather talks about, my family knew about in Thailand because they've done such great work there, everyone knows about it. So that was very exciting for me, coming from the other side of the world and finding that all these connections actually feed back into one another. The other thing which really blew me away, apart from the fantastic tutorial system and the academic environment, was simply that Oxford is a very, very international university. Another thing which I didn't expect when I applied here, um, I've met people from all over the world, first of all, and I've also had the opportunity to go to all sorts of places in the world through institutions in Oxford. I've, I've had the opportunity to volunteer in Kenya, Bosnia, Georgia, not the state in the US, and I've hitchhiked to Morocco for charity and that's all been amazing and it has only been possible because I made the choice to come here in the first place. But at the same time it's not all been fun and games and sometimes um, I, it, it always takes me aback how little people know about where I come from even though I come from a former British colony and supposedly a very prized one for 123 years but most people still think I come from China even though I'm much closer to Malaysia and Indonesia and China's a six hour flight away. And it's a bit difficult sometimes when working with patients when they assume that English isn't my first language when it is and I barely speak anything else and my Mandarin is barely possible. But it's, it's always interesting starting conversations about where you come from and what you do because at the end of the day people are very receptive to hear a bit more about you and what you have to offer. And that was one of the reasons why I decided to do something about these two things that I noticed that lots of things in this university were geared towards home students. Heather's shown you the statistics, 85% of undergraduates are home students, only 15% of us are international. And in, at the graduate level, the numbers are a bit different, but I came to Oxford as an undergraduate, so my view was very much coloured in that way. And in my third year, I discovered the existence of a group called the International Students Campaign, which is linked to the Students' Union. And at the time, it was a kind of a moribund organisation, exactly the kind of thing which would excite someone like me. So I decided to take that on and see what I could do about it. And I was interested in promoting the awareness of different cultures in the university, a university which a lot of people don't think is international, even though it is very much so, and also to strengthen welfare provision in the university in terms of international student welfare. I'm very happy to say that with Heather's assistance and with the assistance of people from the international office who've also been really into this, we've been able to make some strides in the past two years We've recently produced a guidebook for international students that is being published as we speak and will be distributed starting from the end of this week. And we've had a festival where we got together students from all over the university, all over the world, to come and showcase their culture. We were surprised when 500 people turned up on a very nice Saturday afternoon because we thought everyone would want to be outside an afternoon a bit like today. <laughs> and so it's been, it's been very good and I'm really lucky because I've been able to have all these experiences and most importantly I've been able to do something about the things I felt were a bit more challenging and give back to the university. So um, I know I spoke a little bit quickly, very enthusiastic as I usually am, but that's my story. Thank you.